so we are going. All right. Uh, welcome to the Unabashed Gaming Podcast. My name is David Schimpf. I'm David Larkins. And tonight we're going to be talking about Trail of Cthulhu. And what else? Uh, well, I don't know really exactly how to um, uh, encapsulate it, but let's just say narrative mechanics. That sounds good. Okay. Uh, for this, our 14th episode? I believe so. All right. Yeah. Sweet. We should really start keeping track. Probably, but it's sometimes more fun to guess, I'd say. Yeah, that's true. And then later on I go, yay, we guessed right. Exactly. Oh. So, um, this is sort of a belated um, answer to a, a listener um, question from Bill. He wanted our thoughts on Trail of Cthulhu and particularly the sanity and stability mechanics. That's right. And we had to uh, take a rain check on that because we weren't really uh, well-versed in the system. Right. Uh, we've just had our first, I guess, our first playthrough, but it was two actual games of it mm -hmm. uh, with an introductory story. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, it's it's almost like we probably need to like play a little bit longer because we got a bunch of the stability camp uh, mechanics done, mm -hmm. but um, didn't really see much of the sanity. Yeah. Uh, penalties happening really yeah which is uh which is sort of an interesting uh uh change from the call of cthulhu method where sanity is based off of everything and you have uh that fluctuates pretty consistently even over the course of one session yeah whereas in this it's your stability that goes up and down yeah and your sanity you know you sort of lose that sort of maybe once a campaign once a you know chunk of gameplay i guess you'd say mm -hmm. yeah once a once a scenario maybe yeah yeah um yeah so that was interesting and, and that gets into uh something we'll touch on here which is that i think trail is actually better suited for campaign play than call i would agree yeah but um yeah yeah just uh first a general overview i guess uh for listeners who aren't familiar with it um trail of cthulhu came out oh gosh about six years ago now or so i think and um it's based on a game engine called the gumshoe system which was originally developed um by uh robin laws um who i've mentioned a couple times on this podcast and um was developed to facilitate investigative uh gaming uh, because mystery form games are one of the tougher genres to run uh in rpgs because you generally tend to either make them too easy or too hard. Definitely. Um, you know, it's a, it's not like writing a mystery novel where you can just figure out who done it and then work your way back. Um, you're basically relying on, you know, two to six other people <laughs> to uh, figure out the clues you give them, and you either give them too much or not enough, and you throw in the complication of game mechanics. Definitely. Um, failing roles, not getting clues. And so... The idea with Gumshoe is uh, let's not make it hard to find clues. Um, assuming somebody has an appropriate skill, bam, you find a clue. Right. You walk into a room and you see that clue. And then anything that you're doing game mechanically is only uh, there to kind of deepen the background and kind of enhance your understanding, maybe, mm -hmm. of the clue. But you should be getting enough without having to do anything, really, uh, to solve the mystery once you have all your clues Definitely. in place. So... Um, you know, Call of Cthulhu, I think it does kind of default to an investigative style of play. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you can you can run it as a as a shoot 'em up action, or you know, we've we've done the no man's land scenario. Mm -hmm. um, but even that, I mean, it's it's not exactly conventional sleuthing, but that involved gathering evidence and clues over yep. the course of the scenario and putting um, everything together, putting everything together and figuring out what you had to do. So um, the opportunity was um, seized to uh, to do a, a Cthulhu game based off of Gumshoe. They brought in Ken Height to author it, and um, you know he uh, you know in in terms of like the non-system stuff, uh, I think he did a great job. Um, I would recommend Trail of Cthulhu just based off of the background information that's in the book. Mm. Um, he's got some really cool thoughts on. Um, the uh you know gods of the cthulhu mythos okay like they don't have stats for one thing mm. and uh he really for each god he pre presents like four or five different um you know contradictory theories on what that god is okay you know which is pretty cool because that allows each individual keeper to decide okay in my game cthulhu is you know 
yeah. a big octopus-headed monster, or he is a dream construct, or he is a virus, or whatever it is, you know. Mm. And so it, it kind of it's it's a good, especially if you have a, a group of seasoned uh, Lovecraft fans, you know. Um, and uh, he had a couple other uh, agendas in terms of the game. Um, he's on record as saying that he wanted at least one mode of the game to be um, basically like the first draft of Call of Cthulhu, okay. which was much darker than what was eventually published because you couldn't uh, ever regain sanity. Oh, in Call of Cthulhu? In, in the original draft of Call of Cthulhu. Oh. There was no way to regain sanity. So the, the sanity spiral was a lot faster. Right. You know, and, um, and so Trail has two modes of play. Well... It has, you know, the base rules, and then it, it kind of marks certain rules as being purist or pulp mm. and to kind of help you sift out, like, if you want to run a, a more pure Lovecraftian game or if you want to run something that's a little more action-oriented. Right. Um, and so it, there's a purist rule, which is that you never regain sanity, hmm. which uh, I think in Trail works a little better because, as we said, sanity uh, goes down a lot slower. Definitely. It's, it's a much... Well... We didn't really get very much opportunity to see it go down, but, mm-hmm. yeah, basically at the end of one session, you know, if you saw something horrible, your sanity would go down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I find the um, the directiveness towards towards investigation, towards finding clues, it's sort of a good start. It's, it's like an angle in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find it somewhat constrictive because it does sort of limit what your characters can do after, after character creation. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you, you create a certain type of character, but that means with the, uh, with the game mechanics in Trail of Cthulhu, they can't even attempt roles that other characters can, which mm-hmm. um, offers the, uh, the opportunity to create, you know, various different types of characters in the game. But at the same time, I kind of like the, uh, the concept in Call of Cthulhu where, you know, even if you don't have any full knowledge towards, you know, occult or natural history, you still had, like, a base percentage chance to succeed on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that gives you the opportunity to progress in it if you, you know, use it and succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine we didn't really get to uh, character progression in Trail of Cthulhu that you there's opportunity to develop more skills in your own character sheet. That's true, uh, yeah. To determine what you would... Uh, what skills you would like to roll on in the future? Yeah, and I do kind of I do like the concept of buying successes with your current skill points. Yeah. So instead of needing to, I'm always a fan of reducing dice rolls, mm. just because sacrificing like a, a certain a point in something, it's still a it's still a player sacrifice. It's a choice that they're making. It's not it's not just a gimme, which is a, is always a you know a priority in in games where you're focusing on a, uh, a horror aspect yeah. where, you know, you, you need to sacrifice something to gain something. So that's, that's sort of a good method to, uh, to work with. I just, I kind of wish there was a little bit more opportunity for, uh, for characters to work outside a little bit of their comfort level, I guess you could say. Sure. Well, like in our game, um, nobody had a cult. Exactly. And, um, there were opportunities, you know, that, points could have been spent from a cult right to you know gain a little a little extra something um it wasn't critical you know but um you know the the scenario kind of lacked i think for not having that yeah like there were a couple a couple occult spends as they say um that would have really added to the game and the the rule book actually is very explicit in the character creation section in terms of like you know everyone should make characters together Mm -hmm. and check in with each other and make sure you're all covering each other's bases which really ironically kind of reminds me of like classic D&D right where you have you want to make sure different archetypes you've got the yeah. wizard and the fighter and the rogue right. I mean which you know 4th edition actually systematizes you gotta have your, your striker and your defender and exactly. your leader I mean you know it's, it's almost in, uh, at that level where it's like no yeah you definitely want to make sure all your bases are covered and you know I uh, I ran a uh, published scenario called the black drop which i heard good things about mm-hmm. and it had pre-generated characters so it was really just a random 
um, doling out of pregens. Yeah, we a couple of us diced for our characters. Yeah. So. <laughs> and um, and so that's how we ended up with with that gap in a cult. Yeah. And which sort of brings up like another uh, quibble I had with it, which was you know I don't think it works very well for smaller groups. Yeah. Um, you know you can run a Call of Cthulhu scenario perfectly well with one player, uh, mm-hmm. one PC. Really, um, there's even a couple um, adventures out there that are written for a single PC. Definitely. Um, and it's also, I just know from lots of experience, it's also very friendly to smaller groups, two, three players, you know. Mm-hmm. But Trail, I, you know, um, I haven't really Googled this to see if other people have addressed this, but short of each player running multiple characters, yeah, um, I don't really see how you could have, um, you know, a guaranteed <laughs> successful, you know. Definitely, the uh, the GM would also have to obviously be part of the character creation and specifically tailor his campaign towards what right. the players choose. Right. And not saying that's that's necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, if you're if everyone's involved with character creation and you're writing your own game, mm-hmm. you really should, you know, at least implement some things in what your characters are interested in. Yeah. But at the same time, it just sort of feels restricted or restrictive where. You know, in a uh, in sort of a freeform non D and D sort of game where you kind of need people to compartmentalize, and you can't, maybe not can't, but it, it penalizes you if you know you have two players who want to be you know proficient in a cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And it would feel a little forced, I think, if I was in a, a small group, like say two player group, that you know there was never any clue that couldn't be had by the skills we already had. Right. Like if if neither of us had a cult. And there was never a, a time to use a cult. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be kind of odd. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and I mean, would I notice it? I don't know. <laughs> you know, but nonetheless, um, and certainly in terms of using published scenarios, it, you know, you'd have to do a, a bit of revising. Definitely. You know. I think it also sort of creeps kind of a, a mental block for players as well, especially in character advancement. If you don't even get the opportunity to roll for, you know, mm. some skills. So like with our characters... I mean, if if you were running the game completely according to like the uh, completely according to how it was written, and it was a continuing thing, it you may have been instructed not even to tell us that there was an occult thing that we were missing, yeah, right? And therefore, we wouldn't even know that you know maybe we should think about researching <laughs> occult a little bit, like yeah. having some sort of gimme, you know, where you uh, mm. yeah, where you no, sort of totally yeah, you get like a handout or you know just some sort of sign that hey something a little weird is happening that might be a little otherworldly mm-hmm. you know here's like a little here here's here's like a graphical image of what you're seeing or mm-hmm. you know like a scrap of paper that says something that doesn't make any sense to anything that you realize yeah maybe you should ask someone about it no yeah you de- you definitely have to drop in you know like ah oh, yes you're in this library with all these old tomes but they mean nothing to you maybe if you had a cult you'd be able to figure it out exactly you know but you'd have to really lead it by the nose like that yeah and um you know the rule book actually says that when you're first starting to play feel free to um <clears throat> you know kind of offer these opportunities to the players which is what i did yeah you know, like okay so who wants to do a one point you know, evidence collection spend. Yeah. You know, uh, but that once everyone kind of gets a feel for the um, for the system, you should really stop doing that and leave it up to the players. And they'll just into it when they're supposed to spend. You know, I I suppose so. Like you know, hmm, I'm in this old library. Can I make an occult spend? Hmm, I'm in this uh, hmm. crime scene. Can I do an evidence collection spend? Interesting. You know, that's the idea. And um, the spending. I mean, you know, I don't want to be completely negative. Uh, on the game because the spends are part of what I like about it. Likewise. Because it creates this sort of uh, tension during each session, really. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you have this finite uh, resource, and that's kind of a hallmark of, of the Robin Law's approach, I suppose, is, is creating a finite resource that you have to manage mm-hmm. and, um, you know, try and, and guess. You know, you're playing like a guessing game with the GM, basically. Like, hmm, how much should I spend now and how much should I save and reserve? Right. And particularly with what they call the general abilities, which are um, kind of the other side of the coin. With your investigative abilities, you don't make any dice rolls. Yeah. You either get the clue automatically if you have the right ability or you make spends to gather extra stuff. Yeah. Um, But with the general abilities, you roll a single D6 and you can add points from your pool hmm. to uh, add to the dice, and then you're trying to beat difficulty number. And um, in pulp mode, actually, the 
the keeper is supposed to announce a difficulty number. Oh, really? Yeah, which hmm. um, kind of takes fun out of it, I think. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess it's because you're being pulpy, so you have to kind of um, I guess manage yeah. your points a little better. Yeah, and you're sort the... of tailored more towards victory and pulpy. Yeah, so... uh-huh, yeah. exactly. And, and have enough points left over to fight the big bad evil guy at the end. And yeah, exactly. You know? Um, but normally, yeah, the normal default mode is the the keeper, um, you know, makes a mental note or he's got it written down in his scenario notes uh, as to what the difficulty is. And so you don't know, you're rolling, you can either do a straight D6 roll or spend points out of your pool to modify it. And so, like, you know, if you wanted to make a guaranteed success, you could spend five points. Yeah. You know, and, and well, it's not... See, I think the highest difficulty is like an eight. Mm. So I guess you could spend seven points to make it a guaranteed success. Right. And pools can be, you know, 10, 12, 15 points, you know, or yeah, higher so even, you know. I think one of us had a 16-point pool. In yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it is it is theoretically possible to do that, but you're blowing a big part of your pool. And if it's like early or mid-game, yeah. you know, in the session. And then there's rules for like when these pools refresh. The investigative ones really don't refresh until the scenario, the entire scenario is over, oh, man. which could be like multiple sessions. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the, uh, investigative one or the, uh, general ones, um, you know, there's like different rules, like for, you know, more action oriented ones refresh every 24 hours. And then if you find a, a safe place to rest, you can refresh some other ones of your choice. And, right. You know, so there's these sort of situational, uh, modes in which your pools refresh, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's still like this this kind of tense resource management. Definitely. You know. And then there are ones that just, you know, you don't ever get back ever. Like language, I would imagine, doesn't refresh. Yeah, I'd have to look that up yeah. uh, again, like in terms of a campaign. Which is kind of interesting because, like, I, you know, early on I, I blew both of my language skills to mm. both know German and to understand the German that was being speak, spoken over, mm. like, a short, short band. So, oh, right, you did a spend, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I was... It, it's sort of interesting to see, you know, maybe one... I could see one of those being a permanent loss, obviously, because you're gaining an entire language. Yeah. But to, like, spend another point to gain a, a level of fluency in the language... Right. Like, that's... It's kind of iffy there. You, you sort of reach a point where you you get diminishing returns, I guess. Yeah. Which might sound a little min-maxy, but at the same time, in, in a game where, you know, every every spend, every dice roll kind of counts, mm-hmm. it... It sort of creates an imbalance, I would say. Yeah, well, the mechanics are very much uh, disconnected from any kind of like simulationism. They're yeah. much more oriented towards building a story, and, and we'll get into that. But um, I'd have to look into the language. You know, I wasn't paying attention to certain elements of the rules just because we were doing a, a one-shot. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, I was surprised as we were playing, like, huh, yeah, this does seem better suited for campaign play. Because, I mean... The system can be fairly lethal, I think. Um, although the combat system actually is not that lethal. No, I went a few rounds with a girl with a pair of shears, and yeah, yeah, and it took a while. All the combats took multiple, and it was it was kind of boring actually, just doing these dice offs. You yeah, know? exactly. Um, there's an optional rule in the rulebook to increase the deadliness mm. uh, of the combat system, uh, which I would probably use if I was running the game. But that's just because I like combat's deadly in a horror game, I think, you know. They should be. Yeah, I mean, unless you're doing pulp. I mean, you know. Yeah, you're not really playing superheroes. You're playing people who will get stopped if, you know, they get stabbed in the gut by a pair of shoes. Yeah, I mean, the rules actually point out that it's, like, pretty much impossible to kill someone with a single gunshot. Yeah. Even from, like, a forty-five, which I think is pretty... Ridiculous. Ridiculous, yeah. Yeah. Um, There's really no no such thing as a crit, you know. Yeah. Um, And so... uh, But... um, at any rate, uh, characters are, seem a slightly more survivable. Also, um, you know, you have these concepts like uh, your sources of stability mm-hmm. and your pillars of sanity, which I really like, actually. Yeah. And I'm sure somebody's come up with, um, you know, a, a port over to Call of Cthulhu. And, and you know, it's that's something that's worth considering for campaign play, I think, because it, it you know, you create background for your character definitely you know which i think is pretty cool um but you know those are very much campaign mode things mm-hmm. like the sources of stability are people who are important to you that you can use to regain your stability yeah um with the sort of caveat that you're saying to the keeper these are people who are important to me feel free to mess with them exactly you know um so 
but you know, like this, the one shot that I ran was mm-hmm. set on a, you know, one of the most isolated island chains on planet earth. Yeah. And, um, you all had sources of stability, but they were all back, you know, in, in Europe main... or America, yeah. you know, I mean, there was no way that even in the course of that one shot, you were going to be able to contact them. Definitely. Much less draw stability from them. Right. So it, that definitely seems like much more of a campaign mode. And then similar with the Pillars of Sanity, those are um, basically like as your sanity goes down, these are like your basic beliefs. And it, it's really, I, I, as far as I can tell, it's, um, it's mostly just a narrative conceit uh-huh. so that you're kind of stating what's important to your character and then you're watching those things crumble away. Right. Um, beyond that, I'm not sure if there's like an additional mechanical. I'm not remembering if there was an additional mechanical element to it. But at any rate, you lose one pillar for every three points of sanity you lose. Huh. And it's really difficult to lose more than two points of sanity in a single scenario. Right. Because that's the most you can lose from a mythos shock, as they say. Now, you could also lose some from a, C- a Cthulhu mythos Spend. spend right so you could theoretically lose three in a single scenario but you'd really have to be kind of going out of your way to do it definitely and so the, those spillers, pillars of sanity are also going to be something that you're going to see eroding over multiple sessions right and i don't know i i didn't really feel them as being very bolstering to my sanity i guess mm-hmm. like maybe it's just like a misnomer for them but it kind of felt like they were more tied into my character's drive rather mm. than, you know, something that was, like, you know, sustaining them through horrible situations. Right. Um, I guess in longer sessions or, like, longer campaigns, you could see your character or you could see players probably role-playing their pillars of sanity. And, you know, I guess I think mine, I remember mine being, like, live life to the fullest. Right. So, you know, you could, you could have this very vivacious character at the very beginning and then after they lose a few points of sanity, they lose that, and they start, you know, the the player then has to start, you know, role-playing the characters, being more withdrawn. Right. And, you know, but that seems to sort of make them less interesting, too. I mean, they, they still have the basic drive, which, you know, is something mm-hmm. that's, you know, like a one to three word description about them. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, there's still got to be that impetus for them to, you know, go out and do dangerous things. And it seems like sometimes, like, the drive just isn't enough. Like, sometimes Mm. it seems like the pillars of sanity are actually Mm. one of the things that kind of draws the character into losing more sanity. Interesting, yeah. Which, I don't know, maybe kind of the dichotomy they're sort of looking for, like the irony of your your pillars of sanity actually costing you your pillars. I don't know. I think they're definitely going for an irony uh, thing on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like what I said in the session, like... It seems like the implication is that anything you choose as a pillar of sanity is, by definition, false because it's something that's going to crumble. Right. Uh, when you're faced with like the cold realities of of an uncaring universe, you know. And so, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's a bit uh, a bit cynical, I guess. You yeah. know. But um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's you know, it, this again touches on these sort of narrative uh, elements of the system where it's sort of like. You know, I've had personal experiences with Call of Cthulhu campaigns and then listening to actual plays, mm-hmm. other groups as well, where people go through those sort of arcs with yeah. their characters over a campaign. Like, you know, the uh, you know the the once outgoing investigator is slowly turned into a, a you know crazy recluse or you know mask wearing weirdo or some other thing. Definitely. But those are like decisions that the player makes. Um, organically yeah. as the game goes on. And it's almost like the Pillars of Sanity are trying to systematize those decisions. And in doing so, like, when you lose them, it seems to make your character less interesting rather than more. You're you're substituting, you know, right. you're substituting direction towards role-playing with, woo-woo, I'm crazy. Right, right. Like, um, maybe if there was a system to, like, replace those with their polar opposites. So, mm. you know, live life to your fullest or you know, take precaution with everything that you do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know, maybe they uh, give options for, you know, when you lose sanity, you start gaining phobias, and that's what you're, mm. start, you're supposed to, like, start role-playing. Well, that's another odd thing, is that um, most of, like, the sort of conventional mechanics that you would associate with sanity loss in Call of Cthulhu mm-hmm. are tied in with stability loss in Trail. So, mental disorders. Right. Which I am, you know, I was happy to see they had a little sidebar saying, 
we know we call these insanities and they're not actual mental illnesses but just you know that's just kind of what they're called so right. you know uh, but it was nice to at least see that acknowledged but um, yeah things like you know paranoia um, uh, and um, and uh, phobias and all that kind of stuff yeah um, you pick those up from massive stability loss and not sanity loss hmm. sanity really all it really does is it erodes the pillars of sanity which like you say kind of creates this sort of anti-role-playing yeah. thing which i think is definitely intentional they want characters to become more of a kind of a a soulless shell as the sanity goes down um and then but mostly it's just a doomsday clock so that once your sanity hits zero you're out of the game right now stability is the thing that fluctuates back and forth back and forth and you know the amount that you lose uh the nature of the loss whether it was caused by something mundane or something mythos related Mm -hmm. also kind of determines you know certain things uh it has a mechanical effect in terms of like um not being able to use your investigative abilities to gather clues uh having general abilities be harder to you know um succeed at right um and then yeah and then it can cause these these you know insanities which we didn't really get into because no one really went insane until the very last yeah. uh, scene and at that point it was kind of pointless right to do anything because of the nature of where the people were <laughs> at the time um basically having their throats cut but um uh what the recommendation is normally is for the uh, player of the afflicted character to leave the room and for everyone else players and keeper alike to discuss okay what should that person's insanity be hmm. and then everyone decides on it and then agrees to act accordingly in a way that will kind of indicate that insanity hmm. so if it's like paranoia i think that's like the easiest one to um, you know, for other people to, to do. Really, yeah, yeah, you you know, when the player comes back in, everyone can be acting in a way that might cause the player to be paranoid. Yeah, you know, but like say a phobia, um, the players can just agree. Okay, they're they they're phobic of bees now. Um, so let's be sure and like mention, you know, bees and honey and, and all sorts of bee related things as much as possible. Hmm. You know, so that like you know, representing this person's hyper awareness of um, right all things be you know uh stuff like that and it just <laughs> it seems a little little hard to pull off for one thing yeah um and um especially when you start getting multiple instances of quote-unquote insanity yeah if you had multiple players at the table who all have insanity then um phew, yeah you know, that would like, be a little tricky yeah <laughs> huh. so um yeah i'd be curious to see i haven't actually listened to any trail uh, actual plays i probably should and just see how other groups uh, handle that if, if they, you know, if it comes to that. Definitely. Um, you know, but I mean, I, you know, on the other hand, I, I did kind of like the stability mechanic um, as just being kind of this separate thing that, that fluctuates a lot more wildly. Um, the, you mentioned drive earlier. Yeah. That's, um, that was something when I first read the, the core book, I was like, yeah, that's great. You know, mm-hmm. because it's like, Basically, every character comes preloaded with a reason that they're going to investigate weird crap. Definitely. You know? And uh, even if it's something like um, like one of the drives is um, something like uh, Lackey or Tag Along or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and you are, you are, um, you know, uh, oh, what's the Lovecraft story um, with... Um, it's is it the crypt? I don't know. Randolph Carter is kind of following along, and he's got the phone, and his oh. his buddy goes down into this crypt. And, oh gosh, uh, what is that? Um, yeah, I forget the exact title, but at any rate, yeah. you know he he and and he talks about it in the story how you know his his friend is actually the the real talent here, and he's always berating him, and you know right has this weird psychological hold over him and everything, you know, and yeah, and basically you have to choose one other player in the group who you're kind of like you know being the follower of and if that player dies then you replace your follower drive with like revenge drive or something because you want to find out you know what happened to him yeah so um i mean it's it's a cool concept you know Mm -hmm. and um it's it's definitely has been an issue in the past with like call of cthulhu not just in my own group but i know in general where people will kind of say well you know what you know why shouldn't we just call the cops you know and sometimes I've had Cthulhu scenarios end like that, you know, where a 
the group finds something weird and they don't go any further and they pull back and they call the cops and then a bunch of cops die. <laughs> you know? I think that really, but that's sort of like the players in Call of Cthulhu not actually playing to type because their yeah. characters aren't heroes, they're investigators. Exactly. So it's, I don't know, I, I, when I run, or when I introduce people to Call of Cthulhu, that's kind of like the thing that I stress is mm-hmm. that like, you're not heroes, you're not normal people, you're the people that investigate. You're, right. You're the people that go into the basement and that's right. open the box. And I mean, we talked about that in our very first episode, which is that yeah, I mean, in order to have an effective horror game, you have to like make sure everyone's willing to be the stupid idiot who goes in the basement. Exactly. And um, and that's fine, you know. So again, the the sort of common uh, criticism I've seen of Trail is, uh, you know, in, in the online uh, halls, <laughs> is that it's attempting to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Mm. And you know, that could be a perfect example of it, which is that well, all you need are players who are just willing to, you know go through the motions in terms of, you know, being the horror protagonist. Yeah. Um, if they don't want to be horror protagonists, you shouldn't be playing a horror game, basically. Right. You don't need a game mechanic that's going to force them to do that. And, you know, the thing with the drives that kind of turned me off as I was uh, rereading the, the rules a couple weeks ago was that I realized that they're not just there as like, like a pillar of sanity thing where it's like, oh, hey, this is your character and this is what he's like. Right. There's actually a carrot and stick mechanic built into them where if you follow your drive to go down in the basement, say, right. you get stability back. Mm-hmm. But if you refuse to follow your drive, you refuse to go down in the basement, you go to call the cops, you don't just lose stability, you lose twice as much stability as yeah. you would have gained. So it's it's like it's really kind of like a little heavy-handed. Yeah, definitely. You know, because it's not even just saying like, "Oh, here's this reward that you'll get." It's like well, you can either get a reward or you can get punished twice as hard. Yeah. And it's sort of like, ouch, you know? Like, right. Uh, huh. And so um, and so that, I think, is maybe a good uh, transition into just talking about narrative mechanics in general. Definitely. Okay. So narrative mechanics, um, this mm-hmm. idea of, uh, you know, that your game experience should be creating a narrative uh, in the sense of like a book or a movie. So as in the, the mechanics of a game drive the plot to its inevitable conclusion, regardless of player input, really? Well, or, yeah. I mean, the players should have input on it, but the game mechanics should facilitate um, getting to a, a satisfying conclusion of a story, hmm. basically. And that also game mechanics should facilitate um, certain narrative conventions. So, for example... Um, you know, I listen to the Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff podcast. Mm-hmm. And so that's Robin Laws and Ken Height. And the latest episode at the time of this recording, um, they actually were talking about um, monster, you know, abilities. You right. know, like you have a monster in your game and it has special abilities. Um, what happens if that monster doesn't get a chance to demonstrate its special abilities? Mm. Now, Robin Laws feels that that's a bad thing. He feels that, you know, if the monster has some kind of special ability and you can kind of see some indication of that special ability, mm-hmm. but then you, you roll a bunch of misses and he doesn't actually get to use it, right? that it's kind of like, you know, the same as breaking the Chekhov's gun rule in drama. Oh, okay. It's the same as having someone show a gun in the first act, but then not having anything happen with it. Mm. But, you know, I, like, I don't have a problem with that, <laughs> you know, because this isn't a book. And this isn't a movie. Um, RPGs are a different storytelling form. And I don't think that they necessarily have to follow the same dramatic rules. Definitely. You know, and and actually, you know, Ken Height pretty much pushed back on it as well. And he said, well, you know, it's kind of stupid to, you know, have the GM kind of announcing monsters' special abilities so that everyone knows what they are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in that situation, like, well, say that, say that a monster's special abilities are sort of alluded to in the build-up, you know, to the big reveal of, you yeah. know, who the big bad is. And, you know, they had bad dice rolls make it so that they can't use it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe there's, you know, that's sort of like on the GM to, you know, tell the characters, hey, he's trying to use this ability. Right. And describe how that's happening and failing. Right. And so it's not really a... 
it's not really abandoning quote unquote Chekhov's gun. It's more like mm. Chekhov's gun misfiring, <laughs> which has definitely happened in, yeah. in drama. Absolutely, definitely. Or you know, perhaps it's you know, perhaps the players. It's up to the players to prevent Chekhov's gun from firing in the first place. Mm, yeah. So it's. I mean, I, I can sort of see where uh, where a GM would. You know, after designing a very cool concept for a big bad, want them to, you know, demonstrate the, you know, all the wide scope of their abilities, but at the same time, it's it's really not about your big bad. It's about your your players and they're sort of the heroes mm-hmm. or the antiheroes or whoever, what have you. And yeah, you know, the the interesting stuff like you're you provide backdrop, but at the same time, you know, it you shouldn't TPK a party just because you want to show you know your guy casting meteor. Exactly. And I, I think I referenced this before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but, you know, a, a recent experience, recent being last couple of years, but, you know, I, I was running a Cthulhu game with a dimensional shambler that I was really looking forward to, mm. you know, sticking that on the players. And I was running off of a scenario that had mentioned if the shambler comes in through a certain, you know, part of the house, uh, there's parquet floors and you should make a dex times five roll or else it'll lose an action. Yeah. And, you know, I fumbled the thing's dex times five roll. Mm. So it's comically flailing around. And then the player, one of the players impaled his, his, uh, his, uh, gun roll and did double damage. And they basically brought this thing down in like two rounds, I think. And, oh, and they all, those who even failed their sanity rolls lost, like, the minimum of the D10 sanity. They lost, like, one or two points of sanity. Right. It was, like, a non-event, and they completely shut this thing down. And at first, I was kind of pissed. You know, like, I was just like, damn it! You know, like, that was supposed to be a really cool combat. And if I had been running a a game with a narrative agenda like Trail of Cthulhu, Mm. you know, it would have gone the way I had originally envisioned it. Definitely. And that's, I think, what typifies those sort of narrative uh, mechanics is that the GM envisions an encounter or a story going a certain way and then the mechanics are there to support that. But what I love about role-playing games actually, um, you know, from from Call of Cthulhu to uh, D&D to, you know, Pendragon to any yeah. number of, of games that are just, you know, not afraid to just let the dice fall where they may is that you know, basically, um, you can have situations uh, un- unfold like that that you never would have exactly. planned on. You know, yeah. I mean, I just ran a Pendragon game yesterday <laughs> that had 80% casualties among the PCs during a rather epic battle, um, including two deaths yep. of characters. Yep. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was uh, dramatic, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know... We, you know, emotions ran high, and I mean, nobody got angry at anyone, but no, you know, there was definitely definitely some grief at the characters passing, and you know, I, you know, I had a a rough night after the session, you know, because mm-hmm. I felt bad, and but it's like, you know, that's what the game's designed to do. It's designed to elicit strong emotions, both good and bad, and that's certainly not. Uh, an outcome that I would have ever planned on. Definitely. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of uh, modern game designs, narrative or not, tend to try and steer uh, games away or steer campaigns away from from that level of, of bloodshed. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is, is sometimes, sometimes that's okay, but sometimes, you know, um, I think you really lose something, you know, by, um, you know, not letting the dice take you into directions that you might not have otherwise gone. Hmm, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I guess the uh, the obvious um, illusion there is to um, to whether or not you uh, GMs are supposed to fudge dice rolls. Mm. Um, I I say no. I mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like uh, your example of the uh, the dimensional shambler. Obviously, the uh, the characters are you know experiencing this very you know uh, lighthearted kind of encounter with the mythos, mm. and that. You know that might tint their uh, their perspective of future encounters, which will make them even more amusing and and devastating. Mm-hmm. You know, in in favor of the keeper of arcane lore. So yeah, or it could be another you know hilarious you know slapstick comedy routine. <laughs> right, and then dimensional shamblers just become a running joke, which I mean, is every bit as memorable. Yeah, if not more so than dimensional shamblers being these terrible uh, creatures that are going to tear you apart and, and yeah, you know drag you into another dimension. Drag you into yeah. another dimension. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you get these you get these lasting memories from things like 
you know, I mean, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Lindsay in our Pendragon campaign for some time, I think. Definitely. And it's going to color everyone's opinions of battles, you know, going on. Yeah, people are going to be a, well, everyone except for uh, Kinrain who's going to, you know, <laughs> be the invincible knight on life. Yeah, in, until some tragic time comes when he's not. You exactly. Know? Um, which is, again, a total thing that can happen in Pendragon, and I've seen it happen in Pendragon. You know, the most powerful knight can be laid low by a lucky shot. Yeah. And so you never know when your time's going to come. I mean, the I sent out a quote to everyone in the group today from the, from the core book, which was basically like, the point of the game is that everybody dies, and it's a question of how you live. Yeah. You know, and I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah. You know. But, um, you know, so that's why I was kind of, you know, rolling my eyes at the at the whole drive mechanic. Yeah. Because I'm just like, you know, if the players, it's like what you said, if the players can't come up with their own reasons, yeah, I shouldn't have to, you know, it reminded me of when I was in high school, and we never really did this, but we were always threatening when we played D&D, and people started getting, like, unruly, or trying to, like, you know, game the system, or we're trying to, like, be idiots and, like, not take the plot hook and just be like, well, I'm just going to sit in the corner of the tavern or whatever. Right. We'd always threaten, you know, like whoever was running it would threaten everyone else with like docking them experience points. Oh yeah. And I mean, like I said, we never actually did it, but it was sort of like this running gag, mm. you know, like, you know, you know, 500 experience points, man, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like, this is like the actual thing in game mechanics, you know, where, Definitely. where it's like, if you don't do what I want you to do, you're going to lose like a all, lot of stability all of your remaining stability yeah yeah exactly and it, it's just kind of like really do we really need to go there and then the other one that really killed me was um the uh the rules recommending that um difficulty numbers should be adjusted based on how important it is for the players to uh get past that particular part of the investigation so if hopping a wall was really important uh to that part of the investigation the difficulty should be like a three but if it wasn't that important, then you could set it, and it's like a 10-foot high wall, go ahead and set it at 6. doesn't matter. But if it's a 10-foot high wall that they need to get over, it should be difficulty 3. Yeah, I don't really, um, I don't really agree with that. No. I'd say if, you know, if, if there's something they're supposed to get over, um, then don't even have them roll at all. <laughs> exactly. Like, why would, you, why would you just taint your system with such, you know, <laughs> sort of arbitrary variables? Yeah. Um, and kind of, it seems like in that sort of situation, you would lose credibility with your players. Mm -hmm. They would be asking you, well, hey, I jumped this 10-foot wall, you know, like three days ago, and it was super easy. <laughs> yeah, I rolled a three natural. I didn't spend any points, and I got over that 10-foot wall. Yeah, and, yeah. like, there was this monster chasing me, and, like, it was the end of the world, <laughs> and now I can't get over it when there's no one around. It's the middle of the night, and I've got, like, a grappling hook. Yeah, and I want to sneak back and just take a plaster cast of this footprint. What the y hell? Yeah, yeah. like... Yeah, it's, that seems like a really good way to alienate your players, especially the ones that know how to pay attention, which is generally all of them. Yeah, yeah, mine's um, like steel traps, I tell you. Yeah, if you wanna, if you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna gauge a player's memory, ask him like how many times it took him like to hit a goblin, and then the next goblin. Yeah, exactly. And like, if there's any variable there, they'll know. Yeah, right. They're, right. They're great at deduction. Yeah, figuring out what that target number is. Yeah. You know. Well, hey, I hit that goblin on a fifteen last time you're was telling this, me a 15 a miss now what was the hell? this one a 17 man huh? yeah uh, yeah <laughs> but um the one thing that i really did like about the concept of drives and yeah. it would have been great if it didn't have the uh, the carrot stick mechanic you were talking yeah, about yeah. is if it just informed towards why they were investigating yes like just gave a little bit of a clue towards their interest in in like the occult i mean mm -hmm. it wouldn't really play out too differently at least in like you know the the overall you know, perception of, of exactly how games played out. Mm -hmm. Everyone would go down to the basement, but maybe one person would go down because, you know, you know, their blood calls to them and like, mm. you know, maybe they really like basements for some reason. Yes, they love those subterranean spaces. Yeah. That's why. Um, yeah, and they like their meat extra rare. And so yeah, that anything that anything that sort of informs towards gameplay yeah. or, or towards role playing. Yeah. Uh, is, you know, always a plus in my book, which is why I really like Pendragon, because they have mm. a plethora of things that off you know offer towards uh, towards role playing, mm. um, but yeah, to tie in some sort of uh, like arbitrary penalty for not doing like what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Yeah, um, that just sort of it's kind of like your uh, what you mentioned before, like you're you're dragging a player into a game who doesn't want to be playing it anyway. Yeah, why are they even at your table? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could definitely see just taking the Trail of Cthulhu drives. Um, you know, in terms of their uh, qualitative descriptions, yeah. 
you know, throwing them into a Word doc, sending it out to your players before the campaign starts. Take a look at this list. Think about what, uh, you know, motivates your character. Yeah. And that's it. And they can make a note on their character sheet, drive in the blood. Yeah. Whatever. You know, but it's there's no mechanical element to it. It's just a, a simple note to themselves that will help them sort of rationalize. Because, you know, there are times even the most committed Cthulhu player, I think, might think to themselves, why would I do this? You yeah, know? exactly. Like, I mean, you, you have to, like, have some level of, um, of believability with, in terms of playing your character, you know? De- definitely. Like, there are investigators, and there are stupid people. And then there are stupid people. If you have a low intelligence, then, you know, your job's quite easy. But, you exactly, know, but... If, you're, if you're playing your typical Cthulhu kind of, you know, professor or whatever, yeah. who really should know better, you know, um, it's, it's good to kind of have an idea in the back of your mind, at least. Exactly. Well, the, the professor's just a curious guy, you yeah. know, or whatever. Or he's, you know, dedicated his entire life to stopping this specific thing. Right, right. So, obviously, he's going to run into the middle of all those zombies. Right, yes. Yeah. He wants to have revenge on, on the undead or Ex- whatever. Exactly. You know, and uh, same with st- sources of stability, you know, like, um, I could definitely see bringing those into a Cthulhu game just in terms of encouraging players to come up with, you know, a short list of who's important in your life. Definitely. And maybe offering a small mechanical benefit there, like, um, you know, oh, well, you can use a source of stability, um, you know, like normally in Call of Cthulhu, you have to go to a, you know, sanatorium. A, a sanatorium or yeah. a therapist. You know, you could say, well, you can also use one of your sources of stability to, to try and regain sanity. Or, yeah, you know? or in conjunction. like Or in know, conjunction, They yeah. visit you at the sanatorium. Exactly, like, right. And that, that gives you a bonus on your recovery roll or whatever. Exactly. Um, but, you know, for the most part, again, it's just a background, character background uh, element. But, you know, actually, you mentioning Pendragon. Um, I think Pendragon is an excellent example of, of a game that does have a narrativist bent. You mm. know, it's trying to drive a particular outcome definitely you know um but it's it's almost entirely character focused which i think is what makes it different yeah it's not story focused so it's not saying these mechanics are here to serve getting you know from point a to point you know g in the story in fact pendragon doesn't give a shit about that right and in fact you know you can get knocked out of a story um, you know, like in the middle of it, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it it goes so far as to recommend having a backup character who can like you know show up at the earliest, um, you know, explicable uh, point. Yeah. You know, because I mean, like in our battle last night, you know, one of our players was knocked out about halfway through the battle, and uh, she didn't have a backup character, so she didn't really have a lot to do the rest of the session. Yeah. And if she'd had a backup character, the backup character should could have shown up. And she could have kept going with that. Definitely. Um, you know, but, like, I mean, there are many Pendragon scenarios where it's, like, in order to proceed, you know, and, and they're, you know, really high-level crap, like trying to find the grail or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, in order to proceed to the next chamber, you have to uh, roll a critical, which is basically, well, a base 5% chance. It can go higher, but, yeah. you know, usually it's about a 5% chance. You have to roll a critical on this skill, this skill, and this trait. You know, like, I mean, you know, and if you don't get a critical on all three, tough luck. Yeah. You know, you're done. You're obviously not supposed to find the grail. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, whatever it may be. And and I remember, like, the first time I ran a scenario that had that kind of thing in it, it was like my first ever Pendragon campaign. Mm. I mean... My players are about ready to, to just burn the whole thing down. Right, send you to the lynch mob. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, they were still learning how to use passions and stuff, too. And I think they might have impassioned those roles had they, you know, been no. a little more savvy with the system. Yeah, definitely. Because they just did, like, straight roles. Oh, gosh, no. No, yeah. You know, and it was stuff like, you know, you have to critical your religion role, and religion defaults to, like, a 2 out of 20. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, that ain't happening. So <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, Pendragon really doesn't care about story. And, in fact, it's it's very much, you know, in that camp of, like, let's just play to find out what happens. Yeah. And what happens could be everybody dies. Exactly. What happens could be everybody fails, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, looks like an idiot. You know, but that's totally part of the Arthurian you know oh definitely story cycle and so that kind of gets into um something i was also thinking about just in terms of you know trail and everything else Mm -hmm. and like you know i'm familiar enough with like say you know like if i see robin law's name on a game yeah um just from listening to his podcast and reading a few of his games Mm -hmm. i'm familiar enough to kind of know what to expect which is to say um, minim, you know, attempt to minimize dice rolls and, and die types, mm. and uh, probably an attempt to 
create a system that's going to drive a particular type of story experience. Oh, definitely. Right? Um, but a lot of times, you know, you go into an RPG and without knowing what the what the author's intents are. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, I have a uh, I have a degree in history, which you know doesn't mean a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> in the course of getting that degree, um, you know, we were taught that you know when you read a history book, mm. it's really important to understand where the author's coming from. Right. You know, is he a Marxist? Is he a revisionist? Is he you know, conservative, you know, like where, where's he coming from? And usually, uh, they'll tell you in the prologue, mm. maybe not in so many words, but the prologue is kind of where the historian will lay out why they wrote the book, what they are hoping to get across with the book, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And by reading that, you can kind of get some idea, right? you know, of where they're going. And I, you know, as I was thinking about, you know, trail and other narrative games versus non-narrative games and so forth. I was kind of thinking, like, I really wish RPGs had that. You know, like, they, yeah. they'd have a little prologue where the author would just be like, here's what we were trying to lay down. Yeah. You know, and some do. Yeah. You know, or some might have it elsewhere. Like, um, there's an essay I like to send out to uh, my Pendragon players that Greg Stafford wrote called Genre versus Generic, mm. in which he basically says, yes, this is a game with knights and ladies and dragons, mm. but it's not D&D. You're not going to play a ninja. Yeah. You're not going to play, um, you know, uh, a wizard yeah. necessarily, especially in the current edition. Mm. Um, you know, you are here to play this genre game. Yeah. And the and the game is focused on that. You know, and D and D is is great and it's its own thing, but it's this you know amazing hodgepodge sort of kitchen sink yeah of like every single fantasy trope you can imagine to the point where it's become its own trope yeah you know and uh and so if you want that you need to go play D or D D derivative game right you know and you know i would just love to see that in like every single game you know right. <laughs> like here's what our agenda is yeah. you know so that's my that's my request to the uh to the entire uh, rpg industry good times yeah yeah i'll uh <laughs> i second that mm -hmm. because well it's it's kind of the same thing where i wish um i wish uh, published scenarios had some kind of synopsis of the scenario at the at the beginning oh yeah definitely which like most don't some do and i'm always very glad when they do but like most are just like introduction main body and you're just like well what i have to read this whole like 15 page scenario before i understand what it's about like, yeah god damn it <laughs> so uh anyway that's my that's my side rant but um mm -hmm. any uh, any questions about trail in particular um since i read most of the book <laughs> in prepare in preparation for the game yeah when are we gonna play it again oh yeah uh, <laughs> well i will mention that um Mm, you know, well, yeah, let, uh, this kind of reminds me, actually. Um, I really wanted to make Gumshoe, like, one of my go-to systems. Yeah. And running Trail, I realized uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, but goddamn, you know, the people at Pelgrane Press, they are good people. And, and um, you know, Ken Height and Robin Laws and um, Simon Rogers and then the various um, freelancers they bring in just do amazing work. And I fully intend to steal uh, mercilessly from you know their products. Good times. Yeah, um, you know some like some of the stuff they've published for Trail is, is just like you know I think I mentioned before the Armitage Files, which is basically I mean we spent all this time talking about how Trail of Cthulhu is a narrative game, mm -hmm. and you know there's I, I, the game you know lays out how you design a mystery scenario and you have to have a spine with your core clues along the spine Definitely. stuff like that well the armitage files is a 100 percent improvisational campaign oh yeah it's basically a bundle of handouts and you you hand them out to the players and it's basically uh the players are associates of dr armitage at miskatonic university in the 1930s okay and he has started to receive messages from himself in the future and they're getting increasingly destabilized and inc increasingly catastrophic. Oh boy! And and the and so the the adventure is basically these letters that he's receiving, which are in the form of handouts. Yeah. And the players theorize about what's causing this these letters hmm. to become increasingly destabilized. Why he's sending them back? What's going on, etc. And so the the adventure is basically just guidelines for the keeper on how to take the players' theories and turn them into 
you know, a scenario that is evolving as they go along. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the, the core rules uh, do address like improvisational campaigns or adventures at least, mm. you know, so I mean, there is, there's definitely room in there for, it doesn't have to be like a hundred percent scripted, Yeah. you know, but I'd, I'd love to run the Armitage files with Call of Cthulhu. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, there's uh you know, there's just too many damn mega campaigns out right now. There but, really are. Oh, but there's this one for a trail called Eternal Lies, hmm. which is, um, I think the book is, you know, 300 plus pages, oh, wow. 400 pages, um, you know, and it's supposed to be good. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I like the setup, which is basically that you play a group of investigators picking up where a previous group of investigators failed. Hmm. And it's almost like a commentary. It's like a meta commentary because Trail is defaults to being set in the 30s. Yeah. Which is another thing I like, incidentally, because I think that is actually maybe a little more appropriate uh, for sort of a classic era Call of Cthulhu. It's, you know, when Lovecraft was kind of at the height of his powers, for one thing. Definitely. As a writer, he wrote some of his greatest classics in the 30s. And also, I mean, it's the Great Depression, you know? I mean, it's yeah. like the rise of fascism, you know, and, and, um, and uh, mass unemployment and just, you know is this the end of capitalism? Is this the end of the world as we know it? Mm -hmm. Kind of thing. Gathering storm clouds of war. All those dramatic things that really kind of add to the atmosphere. Yeah. I always found the sort of 20s environment of your classic Call of Cthulhu to be kind of clashing a bit with, uh, you know, this, you know, which, which you know, you can make work to your advantage. Definitely. You know, but um, at the same time, I'm like, well, the 30s make a lot of sense. You they know? really do. Uh, so anyway, so the Eternal Lies is basically like there was a band of investigators in the 20s who tried to shut this cult down oh. and got killed. <laughs> and so now you're here 10 years later in the 30s, uh, picking up the pieces from their failed investigation and trying to shut the cult down again. Nice. And it's almost like, you know, you could read that as the 20s group are the Call of Cthulhu PCs, mm. and now you're back as the Trail of Cthulhu PCs. Okay. You know, sort of, uh, because their their investigation fell apart because they didn't have the game mechanics to support. Uh, oh. You know what I mean? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a little bit of a low blow. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could read it. You could yeah. read into it like that. You oh, know? man. But, I mean, certainly I've had Call of Cthulhu scenarios that just grind to a screeching halt because a couple uh, key roles were made, but, yeah. see, I don't see that as a problem. No. You know, I see that as part of the story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if you're writing something where it doesn't have a workaround, if you don't make one specific role, you need to write better. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. And if it's a series of failed roles, like you know what I've had, yeah, then that's the story. That's what happened. Exactly. You know, I mean, wow, you guys really bungled that. Okay, well, I guess half of Arkham gets destroyed. Oh yeah. well, you know, like tune in next week. Tune in next week, exactly. So I don't know if I'll ever run Trail again per se. I definitely play it again. Mm. And um, I gave the core book back to, uh, you know, one of our group members, Jen, who uh, has expressed an interest in running it. And we'll see if she ever does, you right. know. Um, you know, it, it definitely has a very particular style that it, you know, wants adventures to be run in. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not for everybody. So, yeah. but, you know, I mean, I, I think it could be fun for like a short form campaign. I'd be know? very interested in seeking my sinking my teeth into the character generation. Yeah. Like. Oh, that was actually something else I liked. Um, just, you know, random thoughts at the end of the episode. But yeah. um, something that was kind of cool was that the amount of points you get to build your characters is dependent on how many people you have in your group. And so for like a smaller group, you do actually get more points. Right. I should point that out like in terms of my reservations about it not being suited for small group play so you have more points to spread around though that does sort of turn your character into sort of like a superman well you can yeah, yeah yeah for sure so again i think it is like kind of saying well the three to five player model is best yeah. you know kind of thing um but at least there's you know it's it's basically acknowledging like yeah um if you have fewer players it's going to be a lot harder so here's some extra points yeah you kind know. of like a sherlock and holmes sort of situation uh-huh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so, but... Um, well, in any case, I had fun playing Trail of Cthulhu. And I had fun as well. I mean, it you know, it was it did turn out to be a good scenario. I can recommend the Black Drop to any prospective trail yeah. uh, keeper out there. Um, you know, it pretty much, you know, I mean, Trail of Cthulhu did what it said on the tin, and the Black Drop did what it said on the tin because of that. Mm. Uh, you know, the game is geared towards facilitating point a point b point c you yeah. know and so you guys pretty much 
you know, you did skip some parts of the adventure, but you, you got all the core clues that you needed. Yeah. It took you to the final climactic encounter, um, and it ended like a proper, yeah. you know, Cthulhu scenario with two of the characters dead and the third one running off into the night insane. Screaming. Yeah. Ah! So, I mean, it, it definitely delivers the uh, Cthulhu experience. It's just whether, you know, it's it's um, different flavors of, of ice cream, basically. Yeah, it's it's how you roll your dice. Yeah, it's, it's all tasty, but, you know, some people like Rocky Road and some people can't stand it. Exactly. Yeah. So I oh. think uh, I think that's about it. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Okay. Well, <laughs> once again, my name is David Chip, and I'm David Larkins. Thanks for listening. And just a reminder that here at Unabashed Gaming, we love hearing from our listeners. Head on over to unabashedgaming.blogspot.com and leave us a comment or call our Lake Geneva, Wisconsin voicemail number 262-729-9774. We also have a SpeakPipe link on our blog page. You can leave us a message directly through your computer's microphone or headset. Comments, questions, topic ideas, whatever you want to share with us, all is welcome. Hope to hear from you soon. Thanks.